0: Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello and welcome, and thank you very much for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and my great pleasure to talk today with Randy McKinnon. Uh, Randy shared with our congregation from the book of Hosea, chapters 7 and 8 this past week. And so, Randy, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate your work. I know you put a lot of work into preparing uh, for this past Sunday. You were sharing the scripture message with us on Sunday, and of course now for taking time to share with us in a little more informal setting. So thanks for being here.
1: Well, it's great to be here, Bart. Thanks for inviting me, and I look forward to our discussion.
0: Well, this is Randy's Randy's uh, first time with us, so I'm, I'm really grateful that we can delve into this chapters seven and eight. So, Randy, this is also your first time in this particular series. I'm guessing that you've taught—I know you've taught through Hosea before, mm-hmm. I'm sure—and perhaps even preached through it. But this during this sermon series, I always like to ask, especially sure. when it's someone new at the microphone, "Hey, what has God been teaching you in particular mm-hmm. this through this series?"
1: Well, it's always helpful because you study, kind of in my chosen profession, you study these texts very in detail, Hebrew text and so forth. It's nice to hear it preached and be challenged anew when you hear other people uh, preaching this from the pulpit to the congregation. And so it's just been encouraging to remind me about my obligation to repent and to believe and ultimately to find life in the God who provides the new covenant.
0: Well, and and this is something that we've I've talked before uh, with Tim, and uh, even just last week as uh, as uh, we were talking through chapter six. But mm-hmm. with this being a book that is written to Israel, to mm-hmm. Jews, uh, it's not necessarily written to us. But the truths from mm-hmm. Scripture and the truth about God, who God is, is still there, and it's still something for us to take into account.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's a, it's a good thing to remember that when the the writers of these prophetic books are putting them together, they do have a general audience in mind. They're not just writing them to uh, 8th century Jews or I- Israel, but they're writing them to whoever may pick up their book because they're already assuming that there's going to be an exile, that there's going to be a return and ultimately uh, a future hope. And so they are calling all readers uh, back to their message of repentance and faith.
0: And to a faithful God who is right. never changing. Great. So here's a question that might come up from more than mm-hmm. a couple of our of our members here at Grace or whoever else might be listening. We've heard the Northern Kingdom referred to certainly as Israel. Sure. But then we hear the Northern Kingdom being referred to as Ephraim and a couple other times by the capital mm-hmm. city, Samaria. Uh, of course, the Samaria uh, reference makes sense. When we hear of Washington, uh, we know Absolutely. that's talking about the seat of power, but There are 10 tribes in uh, the Northern kingdom. Mm -hmm. Why Ephraim? Why, Why does Ephraim stand
1: out in the text? Well, I think there's a couple explanations. One goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, uh, when Jacob, in some senses, adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own. They were the sons of Joseph. Uh, He blesses Ephraim and, in some sense, sets the younger brother over against the older, which is a common theme in the book of Genesis. But as that plays out historically, uh, the tribe of Ephraim and the land of Ephraim, which was quite expansive and in which Samaria fell, um, was the beginning of the northern kingdom, uh, Jeroboam I. First was an Ephraimite. And so kind of throughout their history, Ephraim just kind of became that that powerful nation in the same way that the southern kingdom was described as its most powerful tribe, which was Judah. And so it just became a a way to discuss that. The the distinction between Israel and Judah uh, goes way back, even into earlier books. Um, But Ephraim as that uh, most significant tribe uh, from which uh, often kings came from uh, was pretty important, including the the place in which the capital uh, was established. Namely, lake samaria
0: okay great great that's uh something just came to my mind i hadn't really thought about it until mm-hmm. i started seeing it there throughout uh, throughout the book here so i've got to tell you sandy and i went home and we uh we have friends Mm-hmm. who just really fell in. It, it, my mind just went right to them as mm-hmm. you were talking about what was going on, the sin that was going on mm-hmm. in Israel. Uh, people who are who are basically calling black white, uh, mm-hmm. calling white black. Uh, they are allowing their feelings about what's going on in their life to dictate their truth mm-hmm. instead of Scripture and, and the truth sure. of dictating what truth is. What what do you say in light of what's going on here? How do you minister to ones who are in the same situation, such as the Israelites were? They're just uh, they've, they're totally turning their backs mm-hmm. on everything God says is truth. How do you minister to somebody like that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, a great question and something that the Book of Hosea really wants us to ask. Because uh, when you think about some of the ways that he talks about Israel and those who are mired down in their sin as those who have hearts that are incapable of innocence and who have abandoned and treated as strange the word of God, uh, that really hits home because ultimately those to whom we minister, you as an elder here at Grace and and the pastors here, those to whom we, we minister are those who have hearts that are easily pulled astray by their own thinking, by the rationale and philosophies of the world, by things that just attract them to that. And so as a result, they, in many ways, don't interpret their life and the things that they experience according to the instructions of God, the Word of God, but rather, in some sense, they abandon that and therefore seek help, like Israel does, um, in the the worldly philosophies, in other, other individuals, in uh, psychology, whatever the case might be. And so, as a result, when we minister to them, we are constantly calling them back um, to the scriptures. I mean, because that is the means by which the God ordained means by which the spirit works to, in some sense, crush their heart and their mind into, into confessing their sin, uh, that is the only thing that's going to lead them to repentance. And so we act very compassionately and graciously towards them, but we're always calling them back to the truth and hopefully exposing them, uh, to the scriptures that the spirit is going to use to bring them back to, to the Lord.
0: And I guess as you even as you say that, I'm thinking of what I'm thinking of Hosea. Exactly what he's doing for Silmer and uh, just loving her, right? Uh, not. Not applauding her sin, not uh, caving mm-hmm. into her sin, but just, uh, hey, I love you no matter what, and I'm going to be faithful to you even if you're not faithful to me.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what the church does. Uh, you know, one thing that we have to be careful that we do is that we're very patient with one another uh, when others are when we see others sinning, uh, that we're compassionate and gracious towards them, knowing that we can easily be led astray as well. And it is everybody who can fall subject to
0: that. I uh, I've yeah, seen well, that happen, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. What's up with golden calves here? <laughs> uh, we see, yeah. you know, we go back to, uh, what, Exodus 32. Sure. We go to First Kings 12, mm-hmm. and we see Jeroboam, golden yeah. calves. What is it with golden calves? <laughs> throughout the Old Testament? I,
1: yeah, that's a good question, and I also often get this from my students. And and, I, and it doesn't necessarily—the Scriptures don't explain exactly why they choose a calf, but I think it has something to do with power and just the uh, the strength that a bull perhaps uh, kind of describe, is described by. And so I think that's part of it. Uh, but why they particularly choose that, especially when Israel chooses to redo the mistake that they had done in Exodus 32, it, it's sometimes baffling to the reader.
0: Now, you you may have mentioned this, and maybe that mm-hmm. was when I was I wasn't napping. I was maybe thinking of something <laughs> sure. else the other yeah. day. But um, he says here in verse five, chapter eight, your calf idol has rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. Were they maybe uh, erecting? Cav, golden calves then, or is he referencing more what Jeroboam or uh, the Israelites at Sinai when Moses? Yeah, was no, I
1: on think I think this is well. It's a little tricky part because he does refer to it as the calf of Samaria. Uh, some people have explained that as if they had kind of built another or fashioned another calf at Samaria, their capital. I think it has to do with the fact that Samaria as kind of this emblem of of the nation. Um, is tainted by what Jeroboam did in Bethel and Dan in establishing those two calves. Uh, it's obviously a repeat of what happened in Exodus 32, but I think what he's saying is, I'm rejecting uh, the worship that you have directed towards these two calves, and perhaps at this particular time in history, uh, just one of those. It's very possible but that, that the calf in Dan had already been destroyed by, by enemies who were coming into the land.
0: And of course, a direct... Uh, a direct uh, uh, going directly going against the commandment, you know, no graven images. Absolutely. What is it? About graven images. Mm. Let's go back to the the Ten Commandments. What is it about sure. a graven image? Uh, some would take this so far as you know, no no icons in the church, nothing, yeah, no sure. pictures of Jesus. Mm. What is it about graven images that God is trying to get across to us?
1: Well, I think graven images um, are deceiving uh, to the people of God, and so one thing that we see throughout the Old Testament is that. Uh, They often abandon their trust in the words of God and the promises of God and presume that he is going to act a particular way just because he's perhaps represented his presence is represented by the ark uh, for example there are multiple times in the old testament where they just assume we have the ark therefore nothing bad can happen to us and they that presumption ultimately leads to their defeat in battle for example with the philistines well they
0: would carry it into war absolutely for that reason yeah. i guess and
1: at times when god told them to it did become kind of a symbol of the, his power and his strength such as around the walls of jericho uh, but other times they just assume, hey, we have this, let's just take it out, and, and we're going we're gonna to win, and, and God's going to do it. So I think their hearts are deceived into thinking that they see other nations who at times they're defeated by worshiping these idols, and as a result, they want to be like those nations and assume that, that it is those gods that are providing victory for them. And so their heart is drawn away into the same error uh, of the nations.
0: Okay, so we see just what you're saying there. We see also, say in Judges, all the way back when they Mm -hmm. first came into the land... Uh, they started uh, doing what was right in their own eyes. Sure. And then on into the the uh, naming of kings or the mm-hmm. um, the choosing of kings, they wanted what the other nations had. They were trying to be like the other nations. Mm-hmm. Let's fast forward uh, thousands of years later to sure. 2023. Yeah. What are some of the things that we do as a people, as a peculiar mm-hmm. people, uh, mm-hmm. as God calls us, yeah. a unique people for his own possession? What do we do? in similar vein, we don't, we typically don't erect a calf. What, that, what exactly. are some of the things
1: we do? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and I've often thought about that, because it, the, our idolatry is perhaps not as explicit to a certain extent as what we read in the Old Testament, per Which se. Which be a problem. Yeah. Uh, right. At times, though, we, we do see... I think when I think about the New Testament and and its warnings about idolatry, there's basically two passages that come to mind. One, uh, Paul encourages the Colossians to begin, in view of them being set with the Lord in, uh, in, in his place, uh, that they they can uh, put away uh, the, the, the sin of the members of their body. And one of those is greed uh, or covetousness, which the Scripture describes as idolatry. And so it, it hints at the fact that there are uh, our hearts as idol factories can produce this greed and this, this desire for things that in some sense displace God. Um, the other one that we need to remember that I think is important um, is at the very end of the book of First John. It's almost a surprising verse. You know, he's talked about loving one another and exalting Christ and understanding Christ. is. All of a sudden, at the end of the book, he says, little children flee from idolatry. And it seems random. Last verse. The last verse of the book. But I think within the context of 1 John, he has been describing from the very beginning um, the importance of understanding who Christ is. Um, of acknowledging Him as the Son of God and recognizing theologically who we worship, namely uh, the Son, and so as a result of that, I think it's a warning that any misconstrual of that um, can push us into idolatry, and so our, our idolatry does not just focus on the things that we have that we covet, that we have greed for, but also we can. Uh, unwittingly, perhaps, in our ignorance, go into idolatry by the fact that we reject who Christ is, or we misconstrue who He is, or we have a faulty theology, which is Uh, you know, why it's so important for the elders of the church and for the pastors of the church to instruct the congregation in in true theology, because to reject that uh, can often lead others into idolatry. which is why the book of 1 John says, hey, listen, uh, even some of those who were among us left us because they were never truly understanding who Christ was. Um, And so this was, in some sense, just an idol that they had produced in their heart, so to speak.
0: So you go to first John chapter five Mm -hmm. and the little children flee from idolatry or flee from idols. Uh Um, that is for not just the, the he's saying little children there, he uses that yeah, throughout 1 right. John, yeah. but that is for not just the rank and file church member, that's for the, 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 the theologian, uh, professional or otherwise, that is for the elders of the church, the deacons of the church, that is for everybody, ministry leaders, because we can so easily fall into that. Can you talk about what it means to flee from idolatry?
1: Yeah, I, I think the the cure, of course, for idolatry throughout the scriptures—I uh, mean, Joshua does this at the end of his book, Moses does this in, in, in the Pentateuch—is to cling to the Lord, to love the Lord with all your heart, to follow hard after Him— and so when we have this prolonged exposure to the biblical text, we naturally are going to be gravitating towards the Lord as opposed to idols. And so we do everything we possibly can to ensure that we're thinking right, we're desiring right, we're following the Lord uh, according to the scriptures that He's given, and, and pray that the, the Spirit will uh, produce those things in us.
0: And we're often encouraged to preach the gospel to ourselves. We, we're reminded to do that often here at Grace, yeah. reminding ourselves of from whence we've come, uh, mm-hmm. who God is, who we are in light of Him.
1: Yeah, and I think in the Book of Hosea, He's always pushing us not just to recognize what has happened in the past, but to look forward to that end of days kingdom of the Son of David, to the the new covenant that has been provided, to new life that is in Christ, resurrected life. So those are inherent to the prophecy of Hosea as well. Hmm.
0: Randy it's it's interesting to me. you look through King, King's accounts, you look through the chronicles. Um, there are no godly kings in the nation of Israel and the mm-hmm. line of succession of kings from Jeroboam on down. Whereas in, and you know, Israel's not that much better, but it is better. <laughs> there are uh, instances of godly kings who have come and uh, focused the attention on God. Uh, there are some clues here, especially in chapter 8, about how mm-hmm. they've come to this point of morass in the culture. There in uh, in uh, Israel, it uh, says there in verse 4 of chapter 8, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not? Uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Is this referring to the actual uh, choosing of kings? Is that what uh, Hosea seems to be talking about here. I
1: think so. Um, you, you know, I think what, what's happening here in, in 7 and 8 is there are serious residual effects of their spiritual apostasy, their spiritual idolatry, right? And so as a result of that, one of those is that they seek help uh, not only from the nations— But perhaps kings that are like the nations, that they can attach their hope to, who are militarily uh, adept, or whatever the case might be. And so I think this is perhaps a, a pretty general statement that goes all the way back to the first King Saul, who was a king like the other nations. And when we get to the northern kingdom and they replace king after king after king, you know when it really comes down to it about about half of the kings or really over half of the kings of the northern tribes did not uh, live their whole life as king and die in old age but were murdered and replaced and so forth Many and reference so
0: was- that here in chapter eight.
1: Absolutely. And so as a result of that, I think he's saying, look, uh, um, you know these kings and these princes that you put in place, they're not according to the standard uh, that, that even Moses has given you, uh, one who keeps, keeps the law of the Lord, who keeps Torah and leads you in that way. And so as a result of that, that's why uh, I'm rejecting that and cutting you off.
0: Okay, now, uh, this I don't think this is too much of a leap. We are entering into another presidential cycle. <laughs> right. And uh, I think it's ins- it would be instructive for us to talk just briefly as we mm-hmm. enter that cycle. It's already started uh, here in uh, mm-hmm. mid-2023. Uh, perhaps you're listening in 24, 25, and you already know what happened. But anyway, <laughs> let's talk about God's people mm-hmm. and reliance on the... We call them presidents. Uh, it's yeah, analogous sure. to the king. Yeah. Uh, and placing all of our hopes on this one party or this one individual, whether it be a mm-hmm. local, state, or federal or national politics. Sure. Let's talk about that a little bit. And uh, specifically, what are some things that you would instruct somebody, mm-hmm. maybe one of your children? You have three, yeah. uh, well, pretty much adult children. Uh, that, yeah. that last one, she's coming. <laughs> but uh, they come to you say, Dad, I'm really worked up about this election mm-hmm. and uh, really there's really a lot at stake here right let's talk about that a little yeah, bit yeah sure
1: sure well I think on the one hand um, based on it, it's it's typical of church in the past often to take passages like this and to in where Israel is we substitute America uh, as if America is the people of God, and this is a warning. America, if you do this, God's going to judge you. He's right on the horizon. He's knocking on the door. He's about to judge you in the same way he did Israel. And that might actually be the case. He might actually um, allow us to suffer the consequences of our sin as a nation. But for the most part, the, the orientation of the books of the prophets in the Old Testament is not towards... Uh, us as a nation, but us as the community of faith, right? Uh, who have made up of people who have repented and who who seek the Lord and follow the Lord and, and therefore enjoy the new covenant. Um, and as a result of that, I, I think the perspective that we have to have as believers is that we can be salt and light within uh, the nation in which we live. We can push towards others making decisions um, and voting in such a way as to bring honor to the Lord, uh, to bring to act in regard to righteousness and justice. Those things that the Scriptures hold up as indicative of those who follow. In fact, you read from Micah uh, at the end of the service on Sunday. This is what the Lord asks, right? He He wants justice and He wants righteousness. Uh, people who walk. That way. And I think that we can be a preserving factor um, in, in America as we vote and as we encourage others and as we can um, help people make decisions on all those various levels that you mentioned from the, the local village uh, to the national elections.
0: And certainly being involved in the process, even as a candidate or whatever it might be, we have uh, godly individuals serving in our legislators, legislatures, and our executive positions, and so forth at given times. Right. And so being involved, and yeah. uh, but but I think as you say, uh, remembering who has the world in his hands, and it's not mm-hmm. us. It's certainly not a president. Right. It is the great God.
1: Yeah, because I mean, when we think about the scriptures and think about these prophets that we're reading, most of them also have words for the other nations as well, and, and the message is the same. The message is uh, heed uh, the words of the Lord uh, and seek Him, and so that that is still as real today as it was in ancient in the ancient Near East, right?
0: It sure is. Randy, we're, we're moving next week, uh, next Sunday, mm-hmm. to chapters 9 and 10. Sure. I know you're not actually going to be presenting that message. Tim yeah. Cocker will be here uh, doing that. But can you give us just a little taste of what's coming in 9 and 10?
1: Yeah, it, well, uh, a lot of the same, uh, when <laughs> okay. it really comes down to it. I mean, uh, chapter 8 had said, kind of that irony of irony is you're going to return to Egypt, uh, which, might again, might not be just a literal return to physical Egypt, but as a symbol of God's judgment, this this great ironic turning. Um, and he's going to say that same, same exact thing uh, in chapter 9. You're going to return to Egypt. Uh, one of the things that sticks out is if you, as you read through Hosea, the book of the 12 prophets and so forth, you find that there's always this pairing up of judgment language um, that we saw, especially in chapter 7 and 8, uh, with hope and with the proper type of response. And we as readers have to kind of be patient to see that. And in chapter 10, he phrases that and talks about that hope uh, in a slightly different way. So so the author is not redundant in the things that he's recorded. And the one that sticks out to me is in verse 12, when he encourages them, like he does in chapter 6, towards repentance. And he says, "...sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with kindness." And then he uses this phrase, break up your fallow ground, uh, till that soil, break it up, it's, be- it's become fallow, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. And so he, he again couches judgment language within the context of hope and future righteousness that the Lord provides. So again, we, we have this new covenant orientation. So again, the, the hope of chapters 9 and 10 is right back to where we were in 7 and 8. So judgment, lots of judgment, um, but view those sin and, and your own sin uh, in light of future hope. And future restoration and future healing, and so that's going to be another theme that, of course, these next two chapters um, uh, procure for us. And again, written to Israel, but a lot of transferable concepts. To Absolutely, us, yeah. I mean the the, the 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 new covenant and the righteousness towards which he keeps pointing them is what we find in Christ, and that we celebrate as a church, recipients of the new covenant. So it is every real, every bit as real for us as it was um, for for an ancient Israel audience. Great.
0: Randy McKinnon, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Sure,
1: really have enjoyed the discussion. Yeah, me too.
0: We've been Digging Deeper Today with Randy McKinnon, and we encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecederville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our study of God's Word, as we said, in chapters 9 and 10 of Hosea. Just a reminder, it'd be a good time to go back to the beginning and get a good read through all 14 chapters as we work towards the end of Hosea here in the coming weeks. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecederville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.